church. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Mark chapter 2. We will move into the second chapter here of the Gospel of Mark in our series through this account of the life of Jesus. As you do so and get yourself settled, your notes ready to go, I want to uh, just celebrate what we experienced together this last Wednesday night. We started back with Equip uh, this Wednesday for all ages, adults, preschoolers, children, and students. Uh, Folks, there were 188 people on campus uh, Wednesday night for Equip. It was fantastic. We had to move some of our adult classes uh, last minute to new rooms because of the number of people that are registered. We have over 100 adults registered for uh, Equip. Almost all of them showed up for the first week. Uh, Here's why we say that, because some of you weren't here, and we would love for you to be able to be a part of Equip. Now, we recognize that because of some work schedules, you may not be able to be here for Equip, or maybe you can't be here every week for Equip. We are podcasting all four of our adult Equip sections, uh, so you can listen in to those for the weeks that you miss, but it is not too late for you to still sign up and to be a part of our Equip as we look at the church defined, uh, who we are and what we should do. And I can tell you this, I, I think we had an incredible first week. I know Uh, All of our next-gen ministries had an incredible first week, and we look to build on that momentum, meeting together during the middle of the week to equip the saints together for the work of ministry. So I hope you'll join us uh, this Wednesday night. Uh, We'll have a team of folks out by the Equip Center that you could talk to. Go ahead and get signed up. And if you would like to participate in the meal beforehand, uh, they'll be able to help you with that as well. I'll invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17 this morning in Mark chapter 2. Mark writes for us, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for the gathered body of believers who come together on this Lord's Day to worship you, to pray together, and to learn from your word. We thank you, God, for the truth of Scripture. We thank you, God, for the power of your Holy Spirit that instructs our hearts in it. May we have a heart after Christ. Mold us by this truth, we pray today. Help us to see the authority that Jesus has to forgive sins, how desperate we are in need of that truth. Thank you, Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In the mid-20th century, there was a man named Christian Herter who was a United States congressman from the state of Massachusetts, eventually became their governor and then went on under Dwight Eisenhower to be the secretary of state. He tells us, he told a story of a campaign day. I believe it was when he was governor and this was when most of campaigning was done in person. These people running for office would travel all day long from town to town, village to village, meeting with people. And he was invited to end his day at a church barbecue. And after a long day of, uh, of campaigning, Herder was famished. And he says in that story that he got in line with everyone else. He was known as a relatively humble man and got in line with everyone else to get some barbecue there at the church picnic. And as he found his way to the front of the line, one piece of barbecue chicken was placed on his plate. And he had not eaten all day because he had been busy campaigning. And so he asked kindly asked the lady who was handing out chicken if he could have another piece. And she said no. And he said, ma'am, I am hungry. I've not eaten all day. Could I have, please have a second piece of chicken? And she said, sir, I've been instructed to only give one piece of chicken to everybody that comes through the line. So if you'll just keep moving on so I can give out the rest of the chicken to the other people. He was not one to call attention to his position or to his authority, but in this moment, he was hungry, and so he chose to do so. And he said, ma'am, do you know who I am? I am the governor of the state of Massachusetts. Can I please have another piece of chicken? And she said, well, I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Please move on, sir. (laughs) Sometimes the people that think they are in control and in charge simply aren't. And this is here in Mark chapter 2, we are going to see uh, several demonstrations of Jesus challenging those who believed they were in charge and showing clearly that he has authority. Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of Mark chapter 3 records for us five encounters that Jesus has with the religious authority of the day in Israel 
Mark takes what is likely some accounts that happened at various times during Jesus' Galilean ministry and brings them together here at the outset for us to clearly establish that he is the authority, that he has the authority to teach and to heal and, as we will see today, to forgive sins. These aren't the only encounters that Mark records for us with the scribes and Pharisees and eventually the Sadducees, but he brings these accounts forward for this specific purpose. He does this same thing when we get to Mark chapter 11 after Jesus enters Jerusalem uh, for the final time for what's known as the Passion Week, the week before his crucifixion. There again, Mark will record five encounters, one after another, that Jesus has with the religious elite, establishing his authority in both his Galilean ministry and during his time of his time in Jerusalem. We'll look at the first two encounters that Jesus has with these authoritative men, these men of religious authority in that day today and the next three tomorrow, uh, next Sunday. By looking at these first two, here's what I hope that we will see together this morning. That Jesus has the authority to forgive the sins of all who follow him. So far in Mark chapter 1, we saw that Jesus was teaching with an authority that the people recognized made him different than the scribes. We saw this last week, and I introduced the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite of Jesus' day, and how they practiced authority wrongly over the people. And when Jesus comes on the scene, how the people immediately in the gospel of Mark recognize his, his teaching as being different from theirs because it was teaching with true authority. And then we see multiple accounts of Jesus healing people, supporting that claim of authority. And by the time we get to the end of Mark chapter 1, even though Jesus had told the, the man with leprosy not to tell a whole bunch of people about what he does, the man goes out and does it anyway and drives the fame of Jesus up drastically to where Jesus can't even be in a city. And so Jesus goes out into the countryside and he kind of retreats for a little while. And Mark 2 begins with Jesus coming back into Capernaum, that, that he comes back into um, the, the place where it's kind of the home base of his ministry. It even says that he had reports spread that he had returned home, that Mark simply calls it home because, again, Mark's recording for us what Peter would have taught, and this was Peter's home. And so Jesus returns home, and he's going to have a couple encounters here in, in Capernaum that are going to clearly show us that Jesus isn't just an authoritative teacher or just an authoritative miracle worker, but that Jesus has all authority because only, only God has the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus has that authority to forgive the sins of all who follow him. Let's look at this first account in verses one through 12, where we see Jesus's authority established to forgive sins. Look back with me in verses one through four. We're, we've already seen that he's come to Capernaum after some days. So he's, he's come back into the city now and it was reported that he was home and many gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing him to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. 
So the scene is, again, Peter's hometown, Capernaum, Jesus' home base for ministry. After some time, he's come back into the city, Mark tells us, and people are excited. And so Jesus goes into somebody's home. We're not sure if this is uh, Peter's home. Maybe this is Peter's mother-in-law's home, who he had healed in the previous chapter. It's somebody's house there in Capernaum. It's not the synagogue where he uh, had already taught, but it is somebody's private home. And people have gathered into the common space in this private home. Most of these homes would have simply had maybe two spaces, a common space and a sleeping area, if that. But people have crowded into the common space of this home. We're told in the text, people have crowded into the doorways. People are crowded outside. They're doing whatever they can to hear Jesus. And there are four men who we know later have faith in Jesus. They believe that Jesus has at least the authority to teach and to heal. And they're going to demonstrate that by their action. And they have a friend who is a paralytic. He is unable to move. He's paralyzed. But they can't get him to Jesus because the room is crowded. The doorway is crowded. Outside is crowded. And so these men come up with an idea. And that is that they're going to climb to the top of the house and dig a hole and lower this man in. Now, we have to know a little bit about first century Israelite architecture to understand why this is even possible, okay? Most of the homes in that day would have made use of the roof as living space. They may have slept up there during cooler or during warmer times of the year to be cool. They may have uh, used it for other Uh, for other functions within the household. And so most homes would have had an exterior set of steps to get to the roof. So it's not like these men somehow magically appeared on the roof. Um, The architecture would have provided for them to get to the roof. And this wouldn't have been a roof with asphalt shingles or, or, or metal roofing. It would have been, the roof would have been flat and made of the same substance as the rest. It would have been a mixture of mud and grass laid over timbers and sticks. When it dries, it's hard enough for someone to walk on. It can, hold, it can hold the weight, obviously, of several men, but it is able to be dug out. And so that's what these men do. These men dig out the hole, a hole in somebody's roof. Now, I've been told this story since I was a kid, and we tell this, this is one of the popular stories that we teach children early on of, of Jesus. I'm gonna come back to that and say, Maybe how we, one thing we ought to emphasize a little bit in the story that we don't necessarily emphasize. Um, But think about this for a minute. When you've seen pictures, if you grew up in church like I did, you probably saw pictures of this. And it's like this nice and neat rectangle hole that they've dug out in the, in the roof and they're lowering this guy with ropes. This was probably a much more chaotic scene than what we have, the picture that we've painted. Think for a minute, these guys are digging into mud and grass and sticks above a crowded room full of people. What do you think's happening in that room below them? There's, there's mud and sticks and dirt falling on those people as they, as they dig out this hole. And yet the people, it seems as if remain because they, they want to hear the teachings of Jesus. And these men want their friend to hear the teachings of Jesus. Those who know the authority of Jesus bring others to him. And that's what these men are demonstrating is Jesus is in this room, we're told in verse two, preaching the word to those who have gathered. We're never told that these men bring their friend so that Jesus will heal him. Notice what the 
what the emphasis is on here at the beginning of the story. The emphasis is on the gather, people having gathered to hear the teaching of Jesus. Now, I think it would be a little much to assume that these guys aren't thinking about Jesus healing their friend. But in context of how the story begins, you can make an argument that what these men want more than that is for their friend to be able to hear the teachings of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus is teaching in, that's what Jesus is doing in the passage. He's preaching the word, verse 2 says. And these men have carried their friend so that he can hear the preached word of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and they can't get close so they dig this hole above and lower their friend down. Now, we're going to constantly come back to this idea as we walk through these two stories together. But this is the first little part of it that I want to give to you. What lengths would you go to to bring a friend to Jesus? These guys destroyed somebody else's house to do it. These guys dug a hole in the roof of a house that at least in the text we're led to assume was not their own. There's some significant property damage that takes place here and there's no apology for it. Maybe they fixed it later. We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. But these guys were willing to go to great lengths to bring a friend to Jesus. What are we willing to sacrifice to bring somebody to Jesus? What are we willing to do to bring somebody to Jesus? How important is the authoritative teaching of Jesus, the truth that Jesus is the Son of God? How important is that to us that we would go to the same kind of links that these men go to to bring their friend? Would we go to those same extremes to bring somebody to the good news of Jesus? Because when it says that Jesus was preaching the word to them, that's what he was preaching. He was preaching the gospel to them. He was preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As we've already seen from Mark chapter 1. What will we do to bring friends to Jesus? Because those who know of the authority of Jesus should bring others to him. Then we get to the conflict. Where those who question the authority of Jesus strive to retain their own authority. Pick up in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, walk. So there are, it seems, some of the scribes, some of the religious elite, at least listening to Jesus teach. They're there, they're present. Now it seems as if the majority of them throughout the encounters of Jesus are present simply because they are looking for him to mess up, looking for him to say something he shouldn't say so that they can bring charge against him. You'll notice here that the scribes never speak That Jesus, in this first encounter with the scribes, is looking into their hearts. He is, Mark tells us, perceiving in his spirit that which they are questioning. But what is it that they are questioning? Verse 7 tells us they are questioning Jesus' ability to forgive sin because only God can forgive sin. And in their hearts, they are accusing Jesus, and this this is important, they are accusing Jesus of blasphemy. 
So in the first actual encounter, even though they were introduced last week because the people were making the comparison, now Mark is providing for us the first encounter between Jesus and the religious elite. And in their hearts, they've already made this decision. Jesus is blasphemous. So why in the world is that important? It's important because of what blasphemy would have meant. So if we go back to the Old Testament law, Leviticus chapter 24 establishes what happens when someone is credibly accused of blasphemy. You ready? Leviticus 24, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Make no mistake, the judgment for blasphemy back in the time of Moses at the writing of Leviticus and at the time of Jesus in the first century, the punishment for blasphemy was death. And it was death at the hands of the entire congregation. That means the whole assembly, the people were supposed to come together and stone the blasphemer. This is, a, this is a significant accusation. And this is already bubbling in the hearts of the scribes. They have not verbalized that accusation yet. But that is what they are, from, this, from the outset, that's what they see Jesus as. Because they had established their own authority to tell the people how they could have their sins forgiven by God. And Jesus comes and simply, instead of agreeing with the scribes, and saying, these are the things you need to do to have your sins forgiven by God. Jesus simply pronounces his ability to forgive sins. What Jesus does here for the paralytic is the essence of the gospel. He's in this house teaching the word. That is the gospel. He's teaching the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that people should repent. And here the ceiling begins to cave in on them. And these faithful men lower this paralytic man on his bed in front of Jesus. And Jesus summarizes the gospel in this man's life and pronounces forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. The gospel at its core is about the forgiveness of sin. You notice Jesus didn't give this guy a whole lot of things that he needed to do to earn forgiveness. That is the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Do all of these things and maybe God will be happy with you. Do all of these things the way that we want you to do them, mind you. And, and then maybe God will forgive you. And, and we have to understand the mindset of a first century Israelite. This guy was paralyzed in their minds because either he had sinned or his parents had sinned. That he was, he was in the situation that he was in because of sin, either his own or generational. Now, Jesus never affirms that. Jesus never says that this guy was paralyzed because of that, but he speaks directly to the heart of the matter. He does that which only God can do. He forgives sin. And in their hearts, the religious elite are already beginning to bubble with their hatred towards Jesus because he is threatening their authority. He is threatening their control. He is threatening their way by bringing in the ability to look at a paralyzed man and simply say, your sins are forgiven? This is a direct challenge. 
And they think it's blasphemy because Jesus is claiming to be God. But here's the end of the story. He is God and he has the ability to do what only God can do. And Jesus explains this to him, to them. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Here at the last part of this first story, we see that those who submit to the authority of Jesus experience forgiveness. That is what this man is doing. This man, by allowing his friends to lower him on this bed, is submitting to the authority of Jesus. He's believing that Jesus is who he is claiming to be in his teachings. And Jesus forgives the man's sin. But Jesus calls himself something that is very important here in verse 10. He says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he does, he tells the paralytic man to pick up his bed and walk. But for the first time, for the first of 14 times in the gospel of Mark, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Now, Mark uses numerous titles. This is, I believe, the fourth that we've already seen for Jesus, and we're only in chapter two. Mark uses numerous titles for Jesus, but the most popular out of the mouth of Jesus in the gospel of Mark is the son of man. And where does this come from? It comes from Daniel chapter seven. Several months ago, we did a, I did a sermon series through Daniel. If you'd like to listen to that, it's online. You go back and listen to the sermon in Daniel chapter seven. But Daniel chapter seven is a vision about worldly kingdoms and empires that existed from the day of Daniel all the way through today. And in Daniel chapter seven, in the middle of that vision, this new person appears. Listen to verses 13 and 14 of Daniel seven. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So imagine for a minute, these, these scribes sitting amongst these people, this man lowered down and Jesus forgives this man's sin. And in their hearts, they're accusing him of blasphemy. Look what Jesus says by calling him the son of man, calling himself the son of man. Jesus is saying, you've already missed me. The scribes, if anybody should have known who Jesus was, it was them. They knew the text the best. And so when Jesus calls himself the son of man, make no mistake, these guys' minds immediately went to Daniel chapter seven. It immediately went to this vision of one like a son of man appearing in the clouds and being presented to the ancient of days. And what does the ancient of days do? The ancient of days gives him all authority and dominion and a kingdom that will never pass away. And Jesus is saying, I'm not blaspheming God by saying to forgive sins, because yes, only God can forgive sins, but Jesus is God. From the outset of, the, of his ministry, he makes this definitive claim. And then to prove it, he does what the scribes couldn't do. He physically heals the paralytic. Now we so often, and I told you, I think we kind of get this wrong sometimes when we teach this to children. 
we, we put so much emphasis on the take up your mat and go home that we gloss over the forgiveness of sins. And this says more about us than it does about the text. Think about it for a moment. If somebody were to be in our midst today and be completely paralyzed and in their sin, and they were to believe the gospel unto salvation, professing faith in Jesus Christ, and by the power of God, miraculous hand of God, they were to be able to get up off of that mat and walk, what would we consider the greater miracle? We would likely consider the greater miracle the fact that the man got up off his mat and walked. But what is actually the greater miracle? That the man's sins are forgiven. We get so caught up in the flesh that we think the greater miracles of Jesus are when he heals lepers and heals paralytics and heals blind men and heals women with fevers or even raises people from the dead. We think that's greater than what the true miracle in the story is. The true miracle in the story is that the Son of God looked at this man and said, your sins are forgiven. Regardless of what your physical need may be, your spiritual need is always greater. And Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins and heal your spiritual need. The second account, Mark 2, 13 through 17, we see Jesus' mission to forgive sins. It begins with Jesus calling a sinner to follow him. Look at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea. So he's come out of the house. He's gone out to the Sea of Galilee. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. So all along, Jesus is teaching. He's proclaiming the gospel just all the time. That's the sense that we're supposed to get from Mark. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting as at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many who followed him. So the second story begins with Jesus going out of the house, going to the sea, coming past the tax collector's booth, where I'm going to explain in a moment, and seeing a man named Levi. This is almost certainly Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew, sitting in his tax collector booth. And Jesus, like he did with the fishermen before him in chapter 1, calls Matthew to, calls Levi, that's what Mark calls him, to follow him, and he does. But this is significant because Levi is likely, very, I would say almost certainly, the most controversial of the 12 disciples that Jesus calls to follow him because he is a tax collector. You say, we don't like tax. I mean, right? Like, you get it. I got a letter from the IRS a couple of months ago, and it's like, why are y'all sending me mail, Right? Nobody likes that. We have no clue, though. Our relationship with the IRS is nothing compared to the relationship that first century Roman people had with the tax collectors of their day. A tax collector in the first century would be akin to the mafia today if the mafia's conduct was condoned and even encouraged by the government. That's what tax collectors were. These people actually placed bids to be able to collect taxes for Romans. So they paid for the privilege to collect taxes. Why? Because it was a highly lucrative business. This is what they did. So they would pay Rome to be a tax collector and then charge more in taxes to line their own pockets. And Rome encouraged it. And so... 
first century rabbis in Jesus's day taught that Israelites could lie to tax collectors and it not be sinful. They were taught that to touch a tax collector or to dine in one's table made one unclean. That's important for what's happening here. In most cases, tax collectors were were forbidden to take part in Jewish customs. They couldn't enter the synagogue or the temple. And Jesus walks by who's likely the most hated man in all of Capernaum and says, you, come on, follow me. And he does. And not only does he do that, but then he throws a party and invites all of his tax collector friends to meet Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus has had some kind of impact on Levi's life that we're not told about. Obviously, there's, there's some teaching that's gone on, but Mark is compressing this again for us. So we need to see gospel change in Levi's life, and he's now following Jesus. And not only is he following Jesus, but he's calling others to come and hear about it. And Jesus goes to his house, and he calls all of his tax collector and sinner friends, because by the way, that's the only people that are going to be friends with a tax collector, or other people that are seen as sinners, the outcasts of society, and Jesus goes and has a meal with them. And in the scribe's eyes, this is going to make him unclean. But Jesus has called this man who would have been seen as, he would have been hated by everybody to come and to follow him. Now, I asked a question earlier, what wouldn't you do, right? What links would you go to to bring a friend to Jesus? Can I expand on the question for a moment? What links would you go to to bring the most hated person in your life to Jesus? What links would you go to to proclaim the gospel to people that despise you and steal from you? What links would you go to to proclaim the good news of Jesus and to say, follow Jesus to someone that you think lives a life that is a complete antithesis to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who is your tax collector. This is a question we all have to ask. If we're going to take serious the ministry of Jesus, we have to think like Jesus thought. And Jesus goes by the most hated man in Capernaum and says, come and follow me. And so to to walk in that same way that Jesus walked, we have to ask the question, who is our tax collector? Who is the person that, that is so different from us? Who is the person that stands for things so at odds with us, what tribe, and I use that term in the, in the sense of we have become such a tribal society where we collect with just our own people and look at everybody else's other than, what other than tribe exists that you may even think they don't deserve the gospel? And what are you doing to get the gospel to them? What kind of links would you go to to proclaim the gospel to them? Because that's what Jesus does. And then his association with this sinner's It's again questioned. Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice, in the second encounter that Jesus has with them, they've still not spoken to him. In the first, it's in their hearts. In the second, it's to their disciples. There's a reason for this, all right? These These guys are recognizing something about Jesus. They at least recognize that the crowd recognizes something about Jesus. So instead of coming directly to Jesus, they go to his disciples. Like, what in the world is he doing? Doesn't he know whose house he's at? Doesn't he know the people that he's hanging around with? Doesn't he know what this says about him? Doesn't they 
This is really what they're asking. Doesn't he know what our teaching says this means about him? So Jesus is attending this party hosted by Levi, and again, they question him. You have to wonder, is our association with people that we love for the sake of the gospel ever questioned like Jesus' is? Or have we so insulated ourselves from sinners that no one would ever accuse us of eating with people we shouldn't eat with? Now, you'll notice in Jesus' encounter with sinners, tax collectors, other sinners, regardless of who it is, he never affirms their sin. He always calls them to do what his, what his proclamation was from the beginning. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus never shies away from associating with them. He never shies away from befriending them. He never shies away from proclaiming the gospel to them in love. That Jesus is demonstrating something to us that I think we're not all that great at doing. And that's showing love to the most unloved around us and proclaiming the gospel to those that many, maybe even in our own circles would say, are undeserving of the gospel itself. And that's exactly what the scribes of the Pharisees have done here. He said, what in the world is he doing? But then Jesus uses that accusation, overhears it, and uses that accusation to clearly state his mission. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here in Levi's home, surrounded by tax collectors, surrounded by sinners, crowds likely again pressing in and listening and observing, and the scribes questioning Jesus' disciples, what in the world is he doing? Doesn't he know how this is an offense to what we have taught? And Jesus says, I didn't come for you. I came for them. Now we need to think about this passage clearly. What Jesus is not doing is he is not ascribing righteousness to the scribes of the Pharisees. We, we have to understand, Jesus is not looking at the scribes of the Pharisees and saying, you've already figured righteousness out. You're good, I'm now dealing with these people. Jesus is not establishing a dual system of salvation, one by where scribes of the Pharisees can work their salvation out on their own through their good works, and one that sinners and tax collectors can come in faith in the gospel and be saved. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is talking about their mindsets. He's talking about who they are. And the scribes are convinced that they're righteous. And because they're convinced that they're righteous, they have convinced themselves they do not need a savior. And as long as someone is convinced in their hearts that they are righteous, they will never come to Jesus. You see, we, when we come to Jesus, we come because we recognize we are not righteous. We recognize we are a sinner. We recognize we are the tax collector. To believe the gospel begins with a recognition that you can't do it on your own. And so Jesus looks at them and says, you already think you're righteous. It would be like someone who is sick that has convinced themselves they're well. And that's who the scribes of the Pharisees were. But Jesus says, I have come to those who are sick. I've come to sinners. I've come to those who have recognized their need for a savior. In Luke chapter 14 Jesus is at another banquet and he's confronting the people that invited him there because all the dignitaries are there, all the important people in the town are there and not the unimportant. 
And Jesus looks around and he's like, you really should have invited a different class of people. You really should have invited the poor and the cripple and the sick. This is who you, this is who you should have invited. And a man declares in that moment, right? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This guy's like trying to be pious and make himself sound good. And so Jesus uses it as a teaching moment in Luke 14. And he says, but he said to them, he gives them a parable. A man once came to a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. These are the righteous people who don't think they need an invitation. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house became angry and said to, them, said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. The scribes of the Pharisees in Mark chapter one are the people who originally received the invitation in Luke chapter 14. And because of their own view of their own righteousness, they rejected the invitation. And here's what the master says, fine, go get people that wanna come. Go get people that recognize their need. What were the poor and the needy? The poor and the needy were people that were never invited to a banquet. The poor and the needy understood their position and the master says, go and get those people. And they come and there's still room and, and the master then says, go and just like, go find anybody in need and bring them in because my house will be full. What does it mean to come into the house of Jesus? It, it starts with recognizing your desperate need for that invitation that you can't get there on your own. And I believe far too many people fill church pews week in and week out and think they are in that first group, that somehow they have deserved the invitation, that they have earned the invitation. And listen, if that's you today, it makes you no better than the scribes of the Pharisees. You think you're righteous when you're not. Oh, but here's the good news, my friend. If you'll but recognize that in truth, you're a tax collector and a sinner, power of Jesus to forgive sins will manifest in your life and it is far greater than any other miracle that could be worked today. So what? Am I one who trusts in the forgiveness that Jesus offers and seeks to bring others to him or do I question his ability to save me and or others? I recognize there's a lot here but we boil this down in its simplicity to this. We are either sinners who recognize that Forgiveness is found only in Jesus, or we don't. And if we do recognize that forgiveness is only found in Jesus, then it necessitates that we proclaim that forgiveness found in Jesus to others who are also sinners, just like we were. Let's consider as we end today the words of the Apostle Paul. He writes to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And look what Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. 
But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, there's one reason Jesus came. His mission was clear to save sinners. And then Paul looks into his own life and declares the one passage in scripture that I think all of us should look at and say, no, Paul, you're wrong. He says, of whom I am the chief. I am the foremost. He calls himself the chief of sinners. And this is why I think we should look at it and say, no, Paul, you're wrong. Because when I read that, I say, no, Paul, that's me. <laughs> you got it wrong, my friend. <laughs> that's me. Paul's demonstrating to us the heart that we should have when we recognize our desperate need of Jesus. It causes us to cry out, I am the chief of sinners. I am the foremost. There is nobody in here who deserved it less than me, and yet Jesus came for the sick. Jesus came for the sinner. Jesus came for the tax collector. Jesus came for me. Jesus came for me. But don't miss what he says in verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So when we view ourselves as the foremost of sinners, guess what that means? That means we never look at anyone else and say they're undeserving of the gospel. Because I'm the most undeserving, and yet God has saved me through Jesus. And if God has saved me through Jesus, then I should never look at anyone else and say, they don't deserve it. I should never look at anyone else and say, they haven't gotten it together yet. I should never look at anyone else and say, look what kind of tax collector that person is because by Jesus saving me, this is the argument Paul makes, by Jesus saving me, the foremost of sinners, then the gospel is on display for all who will believe because anyone else who believes will certainly be saved. If Jesus can save me, he can save anybody. My friend, if Jesus can save you, he can save anybody. And when we come to that realization, when we allow our personal righteousness to fade away, that righteousness of the scribes of the Pharisees, and when we allow our depravity to be laid bare and recognize that we were desperately in need of Jesus and he saved us, we then become proclaimers of the gospel to people who the world may say they don't deserve it but then we're willing to go to such great lengths so that others may hear it. These two stories, the authority of Jesus to forgive sins, rightens our minds to both our own need for the gospel and the need for us to proclaim the gospel to all people. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you have saved me chief of sinners <laughs> that you came for the sick and the tax collector the sinner and you came for me and we pray God that if there's someone here who likely is multiple of them who have convinced themselves that they are not sick that have believed that they are righteous on their own would you break down that wall by the power of your Holy Spirit draw them to salvation today 
as they humble themselves before the authority of Jesus, the Son of Man, who has all dominion and can forgive their sins. And God, I pray that you would change our minds about who we think deserves the gospel. Righten our hearts, align our hearts with the will and the actions of Jesus and let us be a church that proclaims the gospel to the tax collectors of our day so that they too may follow and believe, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you hear this good news today and you say, I wanna believe in that, at the end of the service, I'll be with our Connect team out in the lobby. You should come find me. Let, let me talk with you about how you can follow Jesus through faith in the gospel. For many of us, here's our response. We, we need to realign our hearts. We need to confess, recognizing that we've allowed our own version of righteousness to stand in the way of who we think deserve to hear the gospel. May God do that work in our hearts as we respond together in song. Would you stand with us?